Hi, I'm Teresita. And I'm Dick. And welcome to episode two of From the Hovel to the Big House. History has always held a great fascination for me. Until now, I haven't taken the time or probably hadn't the time to try to understand the strands that make up our society. So I've teamed up with Teresita, who is a historian. And over the next few weeks, we will look at the evolution of social history in Ireland. You can think of me as the man at the bear, asking the kind of questions a man at the bear would ask. I'm a social historian. And in my opinion, social history is just as important as every other discipline of history. Well, I've always believed that history consisted of wars and battles and territory disputes and uh, murder and all that. The kind of blood and guts type of history. Blood and guts, exactly. (laughs) Well, I hope to open your mind a little bit on this podcast because, in my opinion... All of history matters. Every discipline of history, whether it's political, economic, social, military, it all comes together to help us understand our past. And this week we will be talking about elites. In this chat we'll have to stray into the present day. I think that it's, it's, um, they're as important today as they were back in the period where yes, we've been Yes, they've discussing. always been very important. But... Um, so to give a bit of background, uh, originally in, in Irish history, the Gaelic lords were the elite in Ireland. So they held political and military power as well as being the social elite. So an example um, <clears throat> would be the princes of Thomond in the Gaelic lord system. And, you know, their, their stronghold was here in Clare. Uh, the first prince of Thomond was Conchobar O'Brien in the 12th century. And for years they held this stronghold and, the, you know, they fought off the Normans, the English and at times each other. But in the 16th century, as the English conquest of Ireland became too strong for them, the last Prince of Thomond, who was Mercra O'Brien, did a deal with the British Crown and his title of Prince of Thomond was abolished and he was given the titles of Baron in Quinn and Earl of Thomond in the British peerage which is the British aristocracy, you know, the British system of aristocracy by Queen Elizabeth I. So some other Gaelic lords throughout the country did the same. And together with the English and Scottish, what we would call plantation families, who were given land by the successive monarchs and settled here, the Irish ascendancy was born. Would you say that the um, that it, it was a necessary transition to to um, accept the crown? Well, not everyone did. I mean, there was, a, you know, that some of the, the families didn't and some, you know, even some of the O'Briens, some offshoots of the O'Briens didn't. Um, and many of those were exiled or ultimately were, were going to live in, in relative poverty compared to the status they had. But I think it was important for the crown to, to get some of the Gaelic lords on side. And to, that was why they were given, you know, these titles and allowed to keep a certain amount of their lands in return for their support. So, um, you know, while we tend to think of the ascendancy as Anglo-Irish is the term that's often used, you know, in in reality, um, some ascendant families have very strong Gaelic or or Gaelic Norman backgrounds. So other examples other than the O'Briens would be the Fitzgeralds of of Leinster and the Wyndham Quinns of Limerick. 
So all of these ascendancy families, whether they were originally, you know, British, you know, planters from from England or Scotland or Wales, or were Gaelic, intermarried with each other over the centuries, and they ultimately became a fairly homogenous class, and they were you know, virtually all Protestant, either originally Protestant or converted to Protestantism. So, uh, you know, generally throughout history, though, one elite simply replaces another. When you say elite, um, are you talking about in every aspect of life or in maybe political life or in financial world? Or uh, I would say at that point, what, what we now call the ascendancy would have been the elite in a practical way, in every aspect. So it would have been, you know, politically, it would have been financially, it would have been in terms of um, the professions. I mean, you also have to think that the, the, the penal laws were in place, you know, for, you know, the, during the 17th, 18th centuries until they were finally dismantled. So in any sort of practical way, they were the elite and they were socially the elite, but they were in many ways quite separate from you know, the, the the Catholic population that were sort of outside their gates, who probably, I mean, I'm, it's not something I'm going to go into much, I don't have a lot of information about it, but probably had their own little hierarchies within their, their small communities. But, you know, they wouldn't have been barristers, they wouldn't have been doctors, they wouldn't have been MPs, they wouldn't have, you know, had access to the universities, most of them wouldn't have been educated. Pretty much the penal laws ensured that... Um, yeah that the Irish plain person of Ireland had no chance of um, bettering themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the the, the Catholics, I suppose, is, is what you're talking about when you're talking about the penal laws, and they did um, ensure that for quite a while. But, you know, in the late 19th century, the British aristocracy were still the most privileged people in the world, arguably, but things were starting to change for the Irish ascendancy. So there was a number of factors here. The dismantling of the penal laws was one um, that had been taken that had, you know, been taking place throughout the the, the two centuries before that. Um, post-famine politics and the emergence of the Land League, there was reduced incomes for landlords. Debt, uh, many Irish families, you know, Irish landed families fell into debt. Debt duties were raised, which uh, created financial problems, you know, for them. And then you had the success of land acts. And then ultimately, you know, as you get into the 20th century, you have the emergence of the, the free state. So by the Second World War, you know, the days of the big house balls and shooting parties up and down Ireland were largely over. So from 1920, many of the big houses were sold, many were burned, both in the, you know, in the Irish War of Independence and the Civil War. Um, some of these big houses now belong to the state, such as Kilkenny Castle, you know, Castletown in Kildare, which had been the home of the Connolly family. And others are hotels like Powers Court, Carton House, you know, Dumoulin Castle, all very well-known hotels here in Ireland. And uh, others became hospitals or schools. But, and I think very sadly, many of the smaller big houses simply went to ruin and disappeared. As you probably realise from, from the previous podcast, I'm a big fan of the Land League. I always feel yeah. that the Land League was probably the greatest um, factor in changing the face of Irish history, much more so than the much lauded 
revolutions and martyrs such. Martyrs that yeah, people like yeah. that because the, the Land League had a, I suppose, a practical aim that was achievable, to, yeah. you know, ultimately achievable. So they, they did play a very important role in changing the fabric of Irish society. Um, but already in the late 19th century, a, a sort of a new prosperous middle class was emerging of wealthier tenant farmers who now, you know, were starting to own their land and merchants. So you had a gradual, yeah, as I said, gradual dismantling of the penal laws over the previous two centuries. And at that point, you know, people in Ireland who, who were new, new money were, were sort of trying to copy the upper classes. They were buying books of etiquette to learn the ways of the other, you know, of the upper classes. And they were sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, trying to copy them. But that changed somewhat, you know, belonging to the old landed class, landed class became stigmatised in 20th century Ireland, especially, you know, once the free state emerged, despite the fact that, you know, you know, wealthy people were buying up the contents of the old houses because, I, you know, in about the 1910s, 1920s, many of the, the old houses actually sold their, um, their contents. And soon afterwards, you know, a lot of the houses followed suit in terms of being sold. So, a lot of a lot of the elite from that era would have moved to England, I would think, or, or maybe yeah. even further afield. Yeah, to, I think a lot of a lot of them did move abroad, especially yeah. the the sort of well, a, a mixture of the um, the smaller and 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 bigger families as well. I know the Ormonds of Kilkenny are one example of that in the twentieth century. Ultimately, moved over to their. Um, their houses in in the in England and in London, you know, when Kilkenny Castle just became impossible for them to keep up. So definitely, um, a lot of the Irish aristocratic, you know, ascendancy families did move to England or abroad, but you know, some of them didn't. And you know, even into the twentieth century, um, Protestants still had significant interests in banks and companies, and they still do. If you you know, you look at some of the names involved in some of the big companies we have here. Um, there still is a certain a certain interest there, um, but in terms of you know the twentieth century and a, a new elite emerging, uh, well you had the Catholic Church. Um, the well I suppose the Catholic Church strongly influenced attitudes in Ireland and elites in Ireland, and you know the upper echelons of them held quite significant amounts of political power. And in a, in a social aspect, you had uh, the growing power and popularity of the Gaelic Athletic Association, which sort of, while I'm not saying they were an elite themselves, in themselves necessarily, they certainly um, gave a, a new idea as to what it meant to be Irish, as to what Irish identity was. Well, you, was you've Catholic moved into the 20th century yes, here. Yes, when we were in the 20th century. Um, so and as the 20th century, you know, went on you you do see um well could i slow you down a bit there now let's go back a bit earlier the the church obviously took a big role earlier would, that, would it be correct in saying that as as um the old protestant ascendancy dismantled yes the church must have stepped into the breach there yeah i mean the church had a big influence at that time but it's really when the free state emerges that you see them having um, a very strong impact politically in terms of how influencing politicians and so on. You know, it's really when the free state emerges that you see that. But they already had a strong, very strong foothold in Irish society before that. 
Yeah, clearly back in the, um, someone had to fill the gap when yes. when when the the toughs, as I call them, left the country or were reduced in their status. It had to be um, uh, groups like the Catholic Church. And I would say, as I mentioned earlier, um, the wealthier tenant farmers as well, very much. And I think another important thing about the Catholic Church, as well as the, their actual, what you could call direct power or political power, is the sense of identity they gave people as to, like with the GEA as well, what it meant to be Irish. And that was, you know, Catholic, that was nationalist. And it was, you know, quite... Um, I would say dismissive of, of any other any other identity. I think that you're overestimating the early influence of the GA. I don't think that um, the GA had quite the impact in the early part of this century or last century that it's given cre- credit for. It certainly had. It it did achieve the ambition of having a presence in most parishes in Ireland. Mm. But I don't think it had the great overwhelming um, support that it has today and and, mm. and that people look back and say, well, the GA did dominate. But I don't think the GA did dominate. I think that's a very false picture. Yeah, well, that's interesting because obviously I, I wasn't, you know, alive at that time. So Neither was I. A, well, that's true, <laughs> but I was further away from it than you. But um, maybe there's a bit of revisionism going on there in terms of the GEA. But I, I was really only giving them as an example in relation to Irish identity as opposed to saying that these were a very important elite. I don't think they were. But Not do, at that stage. No, no. but I do, I do think they had an important influence. The church had a huge influence. Yes, I, I mean, the upper echelons of the church had, of the Catholic church, held an awful lot of political sway for much of the 20th century. So Archbishop Charles McQuaid might be one of the, the best known um, examples of that, who, who was almost like a, you know, a prince in Ireland for all, you know, I don't know how to describe his, his stature and his influence, but it was... Well, his stature was such that every every prime minister in Ireland that I know of conferred with him before they made any major decisions. Mm. So he had that level of, of stature. But then you had others. I mean, there was a Dr. Brown in Galway who was very influential. You had Dr. Lucy down in Cork who was very influential. And, of course, at all stages you had the Archbishop of Armagh who was the primate of all Ireland. Mm. Who, who tends to be forgotten a bit, like in, in who would have been a very, very powerful person. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, these were um, a new, I mean, these you could say were a real successor to the aristocracy, even royalty in terms of the influence they have, how they were treated, how they were venerated. Um, and I suppose that it is, it is, you know, that they did fill a vacuum in that regard. Probably abused the vacuum of the field, I but I mean, no elites, I think elites do abuse vacuums yeah. anyway. So if they're, if they're allowed to, they will. Yeah. 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 But, um, <clears throat> you know, in many ways, as the 20th century progressed, you know, you're talking less about big differences between a leisured elite and a big working majority, as you had, you know, with the ascendancy in the past. So instead, what you see are differences in quality of life. So an example would be that, you know, the differences in diet between the family 
of a professional man and the family of a labourer. So it's more subtle, the differences you're seeing. Um, you know, but some, some many, in fact, would argue that the upper middle class that emerged could still be considered an elite as they had most access to higher education in particular, um, professions and politics. And at the time, um, you know, secondary education was, was generally private across the country. So, you know, not everyone had access to it. Yes, it certainly, it certainly created, um, as far as education was concerned, it definitely, it definitely created haves and have-nots in a very yes. clearly defined way. Yes. I think politics, not so much, because you, you always tended to have a politician emerging from unlikely quarters mm. at that era. Yeah. We'll say nowadays, as far as I can see, all we have is barristers as, as um, <laughs> politicians. But in those days, you had a very wide mix, probably a better level of parliament in those days, given that you had teachers and publicans and tailors and cobblers and farmers, a, a mix of everything. But the, the professions um, were very much, you know, uh, all came from one class. Because Very definitely, people yeah. who had the yeah. access to higher education and, yeah. Yeah, but your free education only came into Ireland in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I think it was Donna Comelli brought that in. Yeah. Whether it is free or not is very debatable. But, <laughs> well, see, I remember myself, like, when I was a young lad, um, and my father was a teacher, his main concern was to teach the boys reading and writing and maybe arithmetic, so that when they went to England at the age of 16 or 17, they could at least do the very basic... Yeah, there's some basic education. But a lot of of young Irish men went out foreign with no basic education. Yeah, it's it's actually very sad when you think Mm. about it, and it's not that long ago in our history. No, you could say up to the 50, 60, 70 years ago now, I suppose. But still, a, sh- really a short time in yeah, history. I mean, yeah. as the Chinese say, 200 years is a very short time. So, I mean, yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, there is another aspect to all of this. And that is when, you, you know, that I see, which is sort of social elites. So in the past, the newspapers and the scandal sheets, as they were known as, contained, you know, lots of salacious gossip about members of the aristocracy and and royal family, and they used kind of thinly disguised nicknames. So an example would be the D of D for Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, and her love affairs and her parties and gambling filled the gossip columns of the 18th century. Or another example would be um, Queen Victoria's son, the Prince of Wales in the 19th century, whose affairs with actresses created a lot of gossip and again innuendo and so on in the scandal sheets in the newspapers. But, but can you know, I ask you something there? If he was having affairs with people of his own class... That probably wouldn't if, have appeared. Yeah, <laughs> it probably wouldn't. Like that's, yeah. you know, that probably shows like that um, the elites weren't supposed to certainly get intimate with the lower that, orders. That was what was more, most scandalous. Yeah. yeah, I think that was more, more scandal. I mean, it might have been hinted out if he had, you know, often these um, people, you know, princes and so on, would have had mistresses from the upper classes and it might be hinted at, but the biggest, most salacious gossip would have been the actresses and the shop girls and whoever else, you know. These, um, were, these were sheets that were produced and passed out. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they would could, have been sold. 
Um, so orchid, yeah, yeah. So it'd be like a, an equivalent of like suppose a tabloid or or something. But they'd um, probably be just a single page, like they'd hardly be. Well, a, no, they would have been, you know, newspapers that were more salacious. Back in, in the twentieth century. Back in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah. God, I didn't think they'd have advanced that far. Yeah, they had, and I mean, they you know they did have a lot of innuendo in them, and and in Ireland as well. Um, I actually haven't come across one sold in Ireland, but I would be sure that they were. I mean, I, it's not something I've, unfortunately, it's something I haven't come across in any of the archives I've been in or anything like that. But be I'd interesting be sure if you did. Must have been. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so now, you know, it, particularly in Ireland, the aristocracy have been replaced by celebrities and socialites from diff, you know, from a different background who I regard as a new type of social elite. So in Ireland, this consists largely of rugby players, you know, people connected to RTE maybe and people from South Dublin's social backgrounds. And these are the people who now fill the social columns and they often use the media and social media, you know, to draw attention to themselves and expand their media profile. Uh, but, I think that uh, I think that's a very broad um view of it first first of all i don't think there's any i think the elites are still what they always were the legal profession maybe the accounting and financial professions have squeezed their way in now um, top clergymen top politicians uh, i i think that social elites as such are things that come and go i mean it, uh, many times through my life a certain segment of the population has been seen as above everyone else. But they generally tend to sink back down because they don't have the support of the profession, professional support, say, say barristers have, like. Mm. They see themselves as very much an elite, like above mm. everyone else, and, mm. and in general, the ju judiciary. Yeah. And they have the support, they have set up the support systems within politics, within finance, and within anywhere it's needed. And socially. And socially. But I think that that's the difference. Like this, you were talking about rugby players. Rugby players come and go. The people that were heroes in, in say, our day, they could walk down the road today and no one have a clue who they were and care less. Mm. And by the same token... The heroes of now, in 10 years' time, apart from a few who might manage to scrape it, uh, get into the media and work it that way, will also be able to walk down the street and no one care who they are. Mm. So I, I think it's a bit... a bit. Um, it's the here and now kind of thing like that. A social elite, I think, you have to have more than just, what, say, a football or rugby player or... or a car driver, whatever has. You have to also have the support of the professional class that's there that's going to keep you in that position. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a really... I personally, you know, I see where you're coming from, but, um, you know, I think there's a really dark side to elites. And I think that the social elite, you know, that, that is there for as much as anything else. I mean, this year in particular, we've seen the, the very dark side of rugby players becoming hero worshipped and so on and you know there is a dark side to that so we have to be I think that you have to be mindful of that but on a personal level um now I would prefer the Duchess of Devonshire and the Prince Regent and all of those because compared to what we now have in the gossip columns I think they were much more colourful 
and much more interesting than what we have now. And they didn't really have the PR spin that we have now either. So, you know, they, they were definitely more entertaining, in my opinion. Well, of course, another elite that you have, haven't passed at all is the criminal elite. They are really a, a very influential um, elite where they control areas. And mm-hmm. they con- I mean, we're at the moment we're reading about Drahada and before this was Dublin. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it seems to me like that they are a very significant elite in Ireland and in probably in most countries. But, you know, I've... In a certain ca- part of society. Yeah, are, well, yeah. yes, that's what I'm saying. In a society... Mm-hmm. They're Something very much elites. You know, I wouldn't automatically think of when I think of elites, but I think that's a good point. And they, they do have a lot of sway in, you know, in parts of society, in parts of the country. And they, they do also have the resources, you know, quite a lot of wealth and so on. And um, Which they show. Which they show, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's a very big part of, of the criminal elite. And and as I was reading there, someone saying, like, they don't want to be in your D4s or whatever. Mm-hmm. They want to be in their own community where they can be seen to be the successes they are. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, thank you very much um, for listening. Um, we will be back next week. Bye. All right. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.